for a Saturday edition of Tori Says. I thought I should do one because I was constantly having delays with my flights. It seems that my anger (laughs) followed me everywhere I went. Storms here, delays there. It was just a hot mess. A hot mess. (laughs) But you know, I thought I'd play that song because I know every parent out there would say the same thing to their child. Therefore, why wouldn't our father say the same thing. So uh, let me tell you guys uh, what I wanted to talk about, but obviously I was with Bergie, so I didn't get to it. I um, went to a few cities, had a few meetings, um, had long layovers for that reason, uh, so that I can uh, meet up with different people. It's been really hard. And I, I find that those that claim to be of faith are those that have the least. And I can see it in their responses, in their actions, in their questions. It's just, it breaks my heart. I had discussions with many people. I mean, the most fun discussions were the ones with Patrick Byrne, of course, because we're friends, right? So it was more chill. But um, I was, uh, you know, listening to um, what they've been, uh, what their findings, which I, I which I can't talk about. I'll leave it to them. But um, there were a few entities that I met with. I do do I want to call them entities since they're government based. <sighs> That, um, well, one of them specifically, very well-known person, said, Tori, you have very active people and we need them. We need them to present themselves and and be loud. And I, uh uh-uh, no, my people don't protest. (laughs) My listeners are educated. They know they're free. They know that everything that is being told to them is a lie and that they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and think that because of the repetition that someone's going to think it's true. I actually had that um, a short exchange with someone in one of the state groups yesterday. It was the Ohio group where the person was like, you know, as of this day, I'm out of a job and my wife's out of a job 20 years because we refused the job. And I told him, You have a decision to make. No one can make that decision. You either roll over and take the job or roll over and get fired. The one thing you shouldn't do is roll over. Because if you fight it and exhaust it, if they have given you the ultimatum that you lose your job because you won't get the vags, you file something with the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor of your state can't uphold something that's unconstitutional because if they do, then it is all of us that will get behind that one person 
that is ready to file the suit. We will be with you. That is the meaning of where we go one, we go all. We will not let you drown. It is at that point that you say, all right, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've exhausted it. Because you can't just jump straight to the lawsuit. You have to follow the procedures. The first procedure is in writing to say, I am not obliged by any written law in my nation to be excluded for employment for not complying with um, man with uh, taking in an experimental vaccine. Word it how you like. Say what you will like and get the response. When that response comes back reinforcing discriminatory practices, you take that to the Department of Labor and say, my employer has provided me an ultimatum that if I do not comply with a mandatory vaccine, that I am getting fired and that is discrimination. It is health discrimination. And I'd like you to take a look at it and do it in writing. Don't call them, do it in writing and have them respond. And if they respond with not defending your rights, and that's where all of us step in, that's how we work. We do not sit there and accept it and cry about it. We must, we must unify. That is why it is important to see the people in your neighborhood, in your county, which by the way, I have to say, Dallas was incredible. I think I said it, but I haven't said it enough. It was incredible. The people there were incredible. I, I, I should go around and just have coffee with all of you. Uh, I wish I could afford all of that. Um, I would totally be out there all the time. Seriously, I would be with a suitcase and just traveling around to see all of you. But what I saw was amazing people united under one thing, and that's protecting each other. <laughs> it's more than that. Remember, your nation stands for a community founded upon foundations that cannot be refuted. You know, a lot of people don't seem to understand that a white hat, a true white hat is an oath keeper. They took an oath to defend the Constitution. And that is what they will be defending. So today, rather than us talk about news, only because today I was, I was, I fell in a rabbit hole. This is people using my weakness of my children uh, that troubles me so much. Because it is such, it's, it's my Achilles heel, um, where I fell down a rabbit hole and was angered. Um, and also, I went through petabytes of stuff that just made my head spin completely. But I'm going to reinforce something that I said years ago, and I've, and I've said many, many times, because a lot of people were like sharing these cute little memes. You've been pent, someone that you thought, which as I told you years ago, this guy is not who he says he is. And first of all, he's GOP. And let's all remember what President Trump said when he ran. I'm going to run for the GOP ticket because GOP vo voters are stupid, right? GOP voters are stupid. Do you remember when he said that? And everyone was like, he said it. Yeah, it's true, though. Republicans are the stupidest ones of them all. At least the Democrats know they're voting for these idiots that are pandering on climate change, which is a big rabbit hole in itself. But it's truth as to why they're panicking on that. Um, they tell you who they are. 
<laughs> they don't they don't hide it. The damn Republicans are the one pulling the strings. And it is only when they enter the Senate that they change. So many people have said it. Oh, Tori, you said he went into the, if he goes into the Senate, he's going to change. He's changed. Yeah, Kramer's changed. <laughs> yes, he has. Yes, he has. Remember, they killed his son before he joined the Senate. They killed his son and he bent the knee, not to God, but... So what we need to understand is that there is no party. It is completely an illusion. Anyone telling you to support the GOP. Oh, you know, I'm getting emails. I'm Rudy Giuliani. I mean, no, they're using their name. Every time I unsubscribe, I get 10 more emails. It's, it's disgusting. I feel like I need to file an attorney general consumer report for spam from the GOP. Seriously. And finally, we're at a point where you can all see what I've been saying. Everything is an illusion. It's just an illusion. And everyone is working within that illusion to solve problems within an illusion. <sighs> it's really difficult. Why? Because it's your reality. So in order, um, I, you know, I wanted tonight, I'm going to watch a movie. That's why I said I'm only doing this on, um, on Twitch because after the show, I was thinking of doing a movie, uh, which is quite awesome. <laughs> so, um, it's going to be, it's going to, it's, it's going to be, this is a movie that I wanted us to watch Welcome together, back to movie Re but I'm just going to show you the movie review since I can't see it on, um, prime with you guys because we have to pay for it. I'm not going to, I mean, you're already a prime member. I don't want us to have to pay each of us $3 to watch a movie. So I want us to watch the movie recap. This will tell you a lot. Recaps. Today I will show you an action, drama, drama, mystery film from a train is moving toward Chicago. Captain Coulter Stevens, an army Chicago. Captain Coulter Stevens, an army pilot, Wakes up on the train, confused as to where he is. Christina begins to talk to him and calls him Sean. He looks through the train, distracted by every movement so he doesn't even respond to the conductor when he asks for his ticket. Coulter is jumpy with Christina as well, when she tries to help him find his ticket. She asks him why he's acting so strange, but Coulter tells her that he doesn't know who she is. He gets up and goes outside for a second, trying to figure out where he is, but he comes back to his seat next to Christina. Suddenly, he sees his reflection in the window, showing a different face. Coulter goes to the toilet and looks at himself in the mirror, seeing someone completely different. He opens the wallet and sees the same guy there. Christina is waiting for him in front of the toilet. He tells her that he neither knows Sean nor her. Suddenly, the train explodes. Coulter wakes up in a different place, hearing a female voice telling him that he's with beleaguered castle and asking if he's functional. He's still confused and can't answer any of the questions the disembodied voice is asking him. The voice only wants to know what happened on the train and where the explosion came from. Coulter asks her who she is, and she shows up on a monitor in front of him, telling Coulter that he already knows that. She tells him that they will rebuild his memory pattern and begins a mnemonic procedure. The woman reads him a passage while accompanying visuals appear on the screen. Coulter isn't paying attention and is trying to get himself out of the seat as the woman continues with the exercises. Suddenly, he remembers parts of the exercise and repeats back what he had heard before. She asks for her name, and Coulter calls her Goodwin. Dr. Rutledge shows up briefly on the monitor checking something, then Coulter asks to talk to his father. Goodwin interrupts him and continues to ask him about the bomb on the train. 
She tells him that Christina calling him another name is incidental. He doesn't know who bombed the train, so Goodwin tells him that he will go back inside for eight minutes again. Coulter thinks that he's in a simulation, but Goodwin will not give him any information about his status she just insists that he find out more information about the train. Find the bomb, and you find the bomber. Coulter is back on the train. Christina is telling him that she gave her notice at work and will be taking the LSAT. He hears a soda can open, and a woman spills coffee on his shoe. Coulter says that it's the same train but somehow different, which Christina understands as some deep statement. He activates a timer on his watch and says that everything looks so realistic, still convinced he's in a simulation. Coulter looks around for the possible bomber and jumps over to- Hey, that's not fair. I pay so that I don't have ads. What's going on here? I'm not signed in. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let's go. Welcome back to Movie Recaps. Let's do that. Stops him and continues to ask him. He begins talking to Goodwin, thinking she can hear him and instruct him on the next steps with the bomb. Coulter leaves the bomb how he found it and gets another idea on how to find the bomber. He goes back into the cart lies to the people that he's transit security and that there has been some kind of security breach so they have to stop using all of their electronic devices. No one really believes him, and when he sees a man still on his laptop, he closes it for him and breaks his jaw. Christina runs over to the man to help him, and Coulter says not to worry because neither he nor she are real. The train explodes, and he's back. Goodwin tells him to stabilize and lower his pulse. She asks if he found the bomb, and he tells her that he did, but Coulter asks to speak to Dr. Rutledge since he figured out that he's her commanding officer. Coulter thinks that he was in Afghanistan just two days before, but Goodwin says that it was two months. He's still confused, but he replies to her questions about the train. She tells him that he's not in a simulation, but that real lives are at stake. Coulter wants to know more before he can continue with the mission. Goodwin asks Routledge if she can tell him anything and when he confirms that she can, Goodwin tells him that the train he was on had already exploded that morning and, and that more attacks like that one are underway. Sean Fentress was on that train, and Coulter is him now. He doesn't understand yet, but she keeps pushing for information. Coulter tells her where he found the bomb and what kind of detonator it operated with. Goodwill explains that the detonation was planned to occur at the same time when a freight train was passing by, engulfing both vehicles. The bomber must have been close enough to see when that would happen to detonate the bomb. She tells him to concentrate on the passengers on his train and concentrate on performing only the tasks that she has given him. They send out of there, making him think for a second. Coulter looks through Sean's things, but only finds her name in his notebook. He wants to go after the guy he saw earlier and makes Christina come with him. Coulter tells her to wait outside the station as he follows the guy inside the washroom. He can hear him getting sick in a stall and inspects him, making him really uncomfortable. The guy leaves with Coulter after him. He joins him at the bench where he's sitting on and asks to borrow his phone. The guy asks to be left alone and leaves when Coulter attacks him and keeps asking to see his phone. Suddenly, the bomb explodes and he thinks that the guy may be the bomber. Not completely convinced, he goes after him again and the man pushes him on the tracks. Coulter doesn't get up in time and is hit by an oncoming train. He awakens in the other place, but neither can he hear beleaguered castle, nor they Coulter. The place feels freezing cold and begins shutting down. The man working with Goodwin tells her that he's in trouble. Then they both go to see Rutledge, who tells them that no one has ever been in a situation like him before and that they should keep sending signals to him and see if he responds to any of them. Meanwhile, Coulter finds a toolkit and manages to restart the power in the place where he's at. He begins hearing distorted voices, as Rutledge is sitting down on Goodwin's computer. Coulter hears her reading the passage to him and calls out to her as Rutledge is preparing to leave. The doctor talks to him, telling him that he invented the thing he is inside of and confirms that he's in charge. As Coulter tells him that he saved a passenger from the train, Goodwin comes back and continues the conversation. She tells him that saving the people on the train is outside of his mission. Coulter insists that she survived, but Rutledge explains that she survived only in the source code. When asked by Coulter what that means, he tries to simplify it for him. Source code is not a time travel machine, 
but something more similar to time reassignment. He can only go back there and report to what he has seen in a kind of parallel reality, through the eyes of Sean Fentress who is his link. Coulter insists that he saves someone so Goodwin asks for her name and looks for her online. She tells Coulter that Christina died that morning on the train. He still doesn't understand, but they need to send him back again because there is a second suspected attack in the center of Chicago. They think that this time the bombers will activate a dirty bomb so the city is being evacuated. The army thinks that if he can find who bombed the train, the second attack might be prevented. Before they send him back, Goodwin tells him about a handgun he can find on the train. She authorizes him to use every force necessary. When Coulter wakes up on the train, he's very disappointed to see Christina there. They talk a little and it's apparent that he's slowly falling in love with her. Coulter has a mission though and he gets up to achieve it. He goes looking for the gun and finds it exactly where Goodwin told him it would be. Unfortunately, the conductor catches him getting into the safe with the gun. He points the gun at him when the second conductor electrocutes him. Coulter wakes up on the train again, only to see Christina next to him asking what he was doing. He doesn't know what to tell her and knows he's running out of time, so he asks her what she would do if she only had one minute left to live. Coulter tells her that he would call his dad and tell him he's sorry. Christina tells him that everything is going to be okay as the bomb explodes on the train again. Before he wakes up in the other place, Coulter has some strange visions involving Christina. He tells Goodwin that the gun wasn't the best idea and that he wants to speak to his dad. She brushes him off saying that she will try to do that. Coulter asks her how he is doing because he doesn't understand the process. She moves aside to show him where he is being kept and tells him that she hasn't been on the other side of the source code because the specifications are tremendously narrow for a viable candidate. Goodwin doesn't want to waste more time and after she assures him that he's doing good, sends him back to check through the passenger's things. Coulter is back at the train and gets to it faster. He draws the military patch that Goodwin has shown him when Christina approaches him. Coulter asks her to look for his friend that disappeared in Afghanistan and gives her his real name to search for. Suddenly, he becomes suspicious of a guy talking on the phone. He goes over to him and searches through his bag, looking for something. Coulter notices that a woman has a bag from an army medical center and goes up to talk to her. He asks her about the letters on the patch. She tells him that it stands for Air Force and that the N stands for Nellis. Coulter asks her for her phone and calls Nellis Air Force Base. He asks for Rutledge and tells the operator to tell him that Captain Coulter Stevens is calling for him. Christina finds him and tells him that the friend he asked her to look for is dead, killed in action two months ago. Suddenly, Coulter has some memories from Afghanistan and he hears Goodwin's voice again, taking him through the mnemonic exercises. When he wakes up in the other place he immediately asks Goodwin if he's dead. He tells her that he found an article online saying just that, as well as that his father received a medal for him. She tells him that he needs to focus on the train and that everything else is irrelevant. Coulter insists to know and Goodwin tells him part of the truth. She says that part of his brain is still active, but that his body is a manifestation. Coulter asks if he's imagining that he's in the capsule and the thing begins to fall apart. She confirms that the capsule is also a manifestation and doesn't tell him where his actual body is being kept. Rutledge intervenes, saying that they need to send him back to the train so that he can prevent another attack. Coulter still doesn't agree with the way the source code works and tells Rutledge that he called him from the train that morning. The doctor tells him that he didn't receive that call and if he did, it would have been a different reality. The Rutledge receiving that call would be a different Routledge entirety. Coulter needs more convincing, so the doctor tells him that the project was sanctioned by a military court. Furthermore, he tells the Air Force captain, that many other soldiers would love the opportunity more preferable than death, having the possibility to continue serving their country. Coulter's retort to that statement is that for many soldiers one death is service enough. Rutledge promises him that he will let him die if he finishes the mission. Before he sends him back on the train, Rutledge tells him that two million Americans depend on the success of their mission and if he doesn't value his own life, he should value theirs. 
Then, Rutledge proceeds to take Coulter back on the train over and over again with no rest period in between. He tells the soldier that they will keep doing it until he finds the bomber. Coulter says that he can't do it and Rutledge manipulates him into getting him where he needs Coulter to be. He plays a recording of his father giving an interview after he died, feeling sorry that they never really understood each other. Coulter tells Rutledge to send him back in. Coulter is back on the train and goes straight for the gun, the bomb. He takes the detonator phone out from the bomb and calls the only phone number in its call log. A man answers as Coulter moves through the train. He tells him to turn around, but the man in front of him hears him and turns. Coulter sits next to him and threatens him with a gun, saying that he can't kill anyone. The man swears that he was talking to his wife so he makes him call the phone again. Suddenly, another phone rings and he apologizes to him. He hears the phone outside and follows after the guy. He sees him putting his wallet back on the train and finally knows his name, Derek Frost. The doors close so he opens it with the emergency handle and jumps off so that he can go after him. Coulter sees him go into a white van and goes up to him. He shows Derek the phone, but he pretends that he doesn't recognize it. Coulter knows it's him though so he shows him the second bomb inside the van. He inspects the bomb and asks him where his next target is when Catherine shows up. Derek shoots them both. Coulter is still alive so Derek gives him the whole speech on why he's doing it. His explanation is that the world is hell and that it needs to be rebuilt. For the world to be rebuilt it needs to be destroyed. Derek gets in the van and leaves them there. The bomb in the train explodes regardless. When Coulter transitions back to the capsule, he sees the images from before more clearly. Immediately as he comes back, he tells Goodwin and Rutledge about the bomber and the van he went into. He confirms that the second bomb is radioactive. Rutledge and Goodwin congratulate him and say that his mission is over. Before they leave him, he asks to be sent back to try to save the people before he dies. Meanwhile, the army arrests Derek Frost before he can detonate the second bomb. Rutledge gets validation from his superiors about his project and Goodwin returns to talk to Coulter. He talks about the possibilities of parallel realities and what different versions of people might be like there. Goodwin explains that he only saw shadows or afterimages of the people that died on the train. She tells him that he can't alter the past, but Coulter insists that there was a failsafe on the explosive that he didn't see before and that she's wrong. Coulter pleads with her to send him back in without approval and then switch him off. She has some trouble deciding, but still does it, telling him that at the end of his source code she will terminate his life support. Coulter tells her that he'll save Christina. Goodwin says that it was an honor and wishes him good luck. Coulter is back on the train for the last time. He asks Christina out for coffee and she very gladly accepts. Coulter asks her to give him a few minutes to save the world. He instantly goes toward the bomb and takes out the first and second detonators. Then he passes by Derek and steals the conductor's handcuffs. While the source code is active, Rutledge gets more good reviews from his superiors as Goodwin walks into his office. He tells her to wipe Coulter's memory and prepare him for a new source code. Rutledge has no intention to let him die to Goodwin's disapproval. Back at the train, Coulter stops Derek from going out of the train and cuffs him to a bar. He shows him the phone and calls the police, telling them everything about Derek and the radioactive bomb in the van. Coulter takes his phone and leaves him there. He sends an email to Goodwin from his phone and calls his dad. Coulter tells him that he's a friend of his and that before he died he wanted to say that he was sorry. Meanwhile, Goodwin goes to the place where they are keeping his body and opens the chamber, seeing the state that is in. Coulter's dad tells him that he wishes he told him that he loved him. He says that he knows it. Coulter goes back to Christina. Rutledge gets a call that Goodwin is with Coulter. He asks for MPs to join him at Coulter's chamber and tries to unlock the door. Goodwin waits for Coulter's eight minutes to run out. On the train, Coulter asks Christina what she would do if she had less than a minute to live. She says that she would make those seconds count. Coulter kisses her. Goodwin switches his life support off and the MPs run inside only to see Coulter's dead body. Back at the train, the explosion never happens. Coulter says that everything is going to be okay. 
He and Christina take a walk to the Chicago Bean and Coulter realizes that the visions he had when transitioning were of that same moment. Make sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you can watch more videos like this. Thanks for watching. All right, so we just watched a movie <laughs> with a lot of truths um, in like less than 14 minutes. Uh, how badass was that, right? So the one thing you have to understand is that everybody knows the unwritten rule that uh, they must tell you, and that is considered consent. If you've seen it, it's consent. They told you. It doesn't matter how, they've told you. So I'm going to take you on another trip. <laughs> this is um, another movie that I wanted to watch on Twitch with you guys, but I can't. It's from 1999. And um, this is, I guess, one of the most fun ones. Are you all right? Yes. Yes. Oh, oh, Lord, yes. Are you the one who came last night all, all in yellow? All in yellow? Oh, that was my father. Oh, of course. The father. Forgive me. Can you forgive me for my wasted life? Everything has been so awful. I know. It has been terrible. But it's not your fault. And now that all the decay is over with, things are going to get better. Understand? Yes. Yes. Well, I have to go now. Of course, of course you do. I'll I'll stay here and pray. See, now that's always a good idea. How do I leave this place? Uh, the front door is open. Will you be back? I promise. <laughs> What? What is it? The sky. The sky? Where? Up there. I don't see anything. Just look! What is it? He says he sees something. What is it? The sky! I have never in my life seen anything like it before. <laughs> or like you. <laughs> what are you looking at? Oh, my lucky stars. A Negro. Say what? How do you do, ma'am? I do all right. <laughs> Good. Okay. What is it? Huh? What do you see? Oh, oh, we were just looking at the... Oh, no! Wow! Poisonous gas! Run for your life! Run, 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 run for your life! Invisible poisonous gas! All right, so that was a clip from a movie called Blast from the Past, where some scientist built a bunker and raised his son, who's Brendan Fraser, underground. And years later, when they thought everything was fine, they come out. So here's another Just clip. Act normal. And if anyone asks, simply say, I'm from out of town. I'm here on business. Write that down. Now I'm going to give you a shopping list and some money. 
We'll need just enough things to get us through the next year or two, and you'll find most of these items at what used to be called a grocery store. Need a girl? I've been thinking about that a little, just these last 15 years or so. Oh, Adam, it would be wonderful if you could meet a girl, one who's not a mutant, and hopefully comes from Pasadena. Nothing against Valley girls, but in my day, anyhow, girls from Pasadena, I don't know, just always seem a little bit nicer. Oh, and son, there's also something called a liquor store. Liquor store. All right, so why am I showing you this, right? So these movies tell you things that um, kind of align with reality. Here's a very old CNN report. Let's take a look at this. This is from uh, 2013. AC360. CNN weeknights, 8 Eastern. He has a spectacular view of the mountains. A family man who lives in a beautiful neighborhood in Utah. But Peter Larson has a very dark view of what the world has in store for us. We take a long ride with him into the mountains. Daylight turns to sundown, sundown to darkness. And then we arrive at the $65,000 structure where Peter Larson, his wife, his children, and grandchildren plan to survive the attempted destruction of the world. So this is the bunker. This is it. Peter Larson is proud to be known as a survivalist, or as it's also known, a prepper. Right now we're about 20 feet underground and this unit is 50 feet long, 10 foot diameter, corrugated steel pipe. Larson believes we are reaching the end of times. An economic collapse could bring serious civil disorder, he theorizes. But he's most concerned about this. There will be a nuclear holocaust. Someone is going to pull the pin. And your idea is that you will be down here with your family. Right. He has an elaborate air filtration system to be used when disaster happens. See, this is now pumping air in from the outside. The underground bunker is packed with provisions, which seem to get more dire the more you explore. Under each bunk is personal storage. So these are clothes, clothes, cold weather gear. And then if we take a look at this one, this has some other items. You got guns in here. Got some guns in this one. What is this? This is a Colt AR-15. It's an old Colt AR-15. Got your ammo. Your got guns. some ammo, magazines. You got enough bullets to start an army here. Um, yeah. And right here, there you the are. Holy Bible. You know, that's actually part of preparedness. You know, when you read the Bible, or along with that, in my case, being Mormon, the Book of Mormon... It all indicates that in the last days, and we feel like these are the last days, there'll be some hard times. Outside the bunker, he has barrels of water, 2,000 gallons. Inside, a food supply worthy of a small grocery. Cookies, Ritz, macaroni and cheese, corn, <laughs> salt, starkist, and a green giant green beans. This is beef jerky. Okay. And so I Why store, so much beef jerky? We love beef jerky. There is an obvious question about all this. Larson lives far away from the bunker. How will he get there in time for what he believes is an imminent disaster? I'm a faith-oriented person, and I spend a certain amount of time with Heavenly Father, reminding him that I need about 24 hours' notice. This bunker even comes with an escape hatch. And this escape hatch is here in case the entrance to the bunker is blocked after a nuclear disaster. If something falls on top of it, Peter Larson and his family can escape here. He says he has a philosophy he lives by. He's fearful of nothing because he's prepared for anything. 
caliber, guns, knives, some of his provisions, which he has with him at all times. I even keep barter material with me. One of the things that I keep is cash. Now this, by the way, happens to be mostly $1 bills. But if there was a breakdown in society, if the... If How much the, cash are here? Um, in here right now, I've got about $2,000. He also carries gold rings. This gold, how much is it worth? Um, between these two bags, there's about $10,000 in gold. Larson is not sheepish in the least about his outlook on life. So we have MREs stored down here. Because he thinks it will extend his life and the lives of the people he loves. And just before he climbs out of the escape hatch and closes up the bunker, I ask him one more question. If the whole world would be destroyed or all of Utah would be destroyed, do you really want to live that kind of life? Sure. Larson believes it's unlikely all of humankind would be destroyed. He says he wants his family to be part of the rebuilding of society. Gary Tuckman, CNN, San Pete County, Utah. Ding. So will that not happen? Will the world not be destroyed? Will we not see a recycling of things? It seems that those that are in power, corporations, elitists, as you say, the cabal, government leaders, all have this insane need to create one point of contact, one global order is what they strive for. And we, this nation here, is the only one that cannot be tamed. So I want us to explore that on a different type um, of view. See, we hear about this new world order, the world order, the Illuminati, the Freemasons. You hear it throughout time. But it's, it's not what people say. And I found this insanely, amazingly put together clip. It is insanely nicely put together. They're just a few little things that I disagreed with, but I was like, you know what? People love to watch and listen. And this person spent a good amount of time and effort in creating this, and this should be shared. So I thought we should explore this. Because no matter how many times I tell you everything in your life right now is a lie, you'll come back with a million things as to say as to why not. Well, here's a summary. This, this moment right now, this feels real. But is it? People look like they have a much better life than they really do. We can't reliably distinguish true memories from false memories. I'm not sure you've ever experienced anything real your entire life.
There's a famous quote that says a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. This quote is widely attributed to Winston Churchill, which is a lie, ironically. There's no evidence he ever said that. But it seems the quote itself has some truth, as an MIT study found fake news spread six times faster than true news. And online in particular, where anyone can post anything with virtually no consequences, it's no wonder that the media we consume is infested with lies. However, the actual term fake news is believed to have originated in just 2016 from a small town in Macedonia, where teenagers were creating websites that claimed to be news sources, but were actually just filled with fabricated and sensationalized stories. Why? Ad revenue. The more clicks, the more money they made. And of course, it's a lot easier to get clicks when you can just make up whatever tantalizing story you want. The thing is, whilst these were just teenagers looking to make a quick buck, media conglomerates were coming to a similar realization. As printed news died out and they lost their loyal subscribers, they faced a new sea of competition online, and so the clickbait arms race began. After all, the business model of the news and the media is selling your attention to advertisers. You are the product, and they have to keep you watching, reading, clicking, keep you consumed. Their primary goal is not to deliver the most accurate news, it's to attract more attention and make more money. And it's been proven that polarizing stories perform best, so no wonder we are more divided than ever when it's in the media's best interest to manufacture fear and outrage. It is better for them that you are scared and angry. And that's just when the goal is money. What about when powerful groups plant fake news stories to deliberately pit us against each other and create a certain narrative? Or countries who plant fake stories to influence elections? It's no wonder fake news is so prevalent when there is so much money and power to be gained from manipulating us like this. And even when these false stories get debunked, the damage is already done because enough people will have already read and believed the lies and the truth just isn't as exciting so it doesn't spread as widely. Of course, fake news is a whole spectrum. Yes, there still are stories that are totally made up and just blatant lies and propaganda. But if we're talking about mainstream news, there's actually something more subtle going at the other end of the spectrum that's perhaps even more worrying. Half-truths are statements that are partially true but not fully true, or not the whole story. For example, if someone's pulled over for drunk driving, they may tell the officer, I only had one beer, which is true, but doesn't mention they also drank a bottle of wine. In the media, half-truths allow you to make something seem believable and avoid libel, but remove all the context and nuance so you can distort reality to suit the narrative you want. And so this is why two news stations can talk about the same issue but have such wildly different arguments. You're always just seeing a carefully constructed snapshot of what someone wants you to see, never the full picture with all the details. And at least with Fox and CNN, you know they have clear biases towards certain political parties and ideologies. The real problem is half-truths are inescapable everywhere. There is infinite information out there that can fit almost any narrative. And so when it's a human decision of which story to report and which stats and details to include, there will always be bias. Even pictures and videos can be so easily edited or taken out of context to imply something totally different that fits the narrative someone wants. Like how an obvious joke can be edited out of context to demonize someone. 
And we're not just talking about news here. Six companies own almost all of the world's media. Disney own all of this. News Corp own all of this. And Comcast own all of this. So you essentially have a very small and powerful group owning and controlling most of the media and quite literally being able to pull the strings of what we hear and what we don't. Putting whatever spin on information they want that fits their agenda. After all, controlling our media is the closest thing there is to controlling how we think, how we vote, how we act, how we feel. Just like Inception, they can plant an idea in your mind without you really being aware of it, and it can spread like a virus. A lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. But it gets worse. If we're honest, we all know that there's malicious forces out there planting fake news stories, and we all know that the media only give us half-truths that suit their agenda. But we still like to pretend that we don't fall for that. We get our information from unbiased sources. But we don't. Because unbiased doesn't exist. Even if it's the most honest journalist trying to be fair and impartial, they've been indoctrinated just like the rest of us and have their own subconscious biases. Even if it's not intentional, their choice of wording and what to include is unavoidably going to have bias. Their worldview will always influence what they show you and how they say it. It's the same with sites that claim to deliver impartial, balanced news. It's still down to a small group of people who have their own biases, who decide what to show. And subconsciously, they will want to focus on the issues important to them, and they'll want to discredit the views and ideas they don't agree with, and pick stories that show them in a less favorable light. We're not just battling fake news, we're battling human psychology. It's like a game of Chinese whispers or telephone. By the time you hear any information, it's been passed through multiple other biased sources who've distorted it, whether intentionally or not. And so you start to realize, to a certain extent, all news is fake news, because 100% true and objective news is impossible. Whether it's fake news, half-truths, or simply just a subconscious bias, in one way or another, you're being lied to. And that is 100% true. See, so many people are seeing these new media prop-ups, these new personas, old personas, trying to hold on to something. I'm biased too. How am I biased? <laughs> Actually, my bias is truth. I don't give a fuck. I don't. And so, therefore, I guess I'm the only biased, not biased person. I really don't care. The times that I am biased, I will tell you. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of partial to that. Yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah, I kind of do that. But the truth is, I have loyalties to no one. Absolutely no one. No one, no one, no one, simply the people. And hmm, there are so many times, uh, you know what, actually, uh, it's Saturday today. See, I've actually lost my days from travel. So it was last Sunday that I met with someone um, since I was grounded um, and... I was told, hey, um, we're going to mobilize this group of people. Um, 
to do this. I said, oh, is that so? Well, uh, you know, that sounds like a good idea because if you get all the, you know, that group of people talking, that would be great. What are they going to do? They're going to go protest. I said, how does that help? Well, we'll get the media. We'll start. uh, Wait, stop one second. So you're using these people. So that way you can get the media, which doesn't have to cover it and they might not, but they're not doing anything effective. And you're using these people. Well, you know, I wanted you to tell, you know, your local people in Texas to maybe join. No, I don't tell them anything. (laughs) I don't tell them anything. Um, They're not my people. I'm with them. Uh, I'm the same. I just have no problem putting my face out there. And, um, And nobody tells them what to do. I actually kept telling many people that. You guys are leaders. You don't need to be led. You know, when I see people saying, you know, all these groups are so bad because there's no leadership. You don't need leadership. You can have a point of contact, you know, um, a point where the person runs your documents. You've got your legal guy. You've got this. You've got that. You've got your discussion group. You've got the minutes. Like in Louisiana, damn, those people are so freaking organized. I can't wait to go to Louisiana. Seriously. Like they're so organized. But the fact of the matter is, none of us need to be led. We don't need a leader. We are leaders. Because our cause is one. And that is that we respect each other. We respect our constitution and our nation and our ability to be free. And that's all we care about. Every single person is fantastic in their own domain. We have fantastic teachers that don't want to be engineers. We've got engineers that don't want to be teachers. They like what they do. You know why? Because my listeners are not lost. Why? Because they have strong faith. And that's why they can discern between the lies. Truth stands on its own. Boy, it's like an irritant to many people. It's like scratching nails on a chalkboard to some. They don't like the truth. Oh, that person is so great. I'm going to go. You know, I was invited to go um, to some event to speak. And, you know, why not? Patrick was going to go talk and he was like, oh, I was like, I'm not talking. I'll hang out in the audience. I'll, I'll be with the people. Putting me up there is nothing. The people are doing something. When you're the fire starter, you don't see the first match standing up after it's burnt to a crisp saying, okay, follow me, other matches. No, it's done. It's toast. It's finished. It did its job, right? It doesn't, it's always forgotten too because it's doing its job. And all of you are going to be lighting fires under the next generation. And that generation will be lighting fires under the other. Everything that's happening right now is happening in order to ensure that the future of tomorrow is the one that is in the hands of the people (laughs) or else they're all going to go underground, climate change and all. Let's continue this. And when you think about it, this isn't surprising. What is surprising is we don't really seem to care. Confirmation bias is the tendency to process information in a way that supports the ideas and beliefs we already have. 
In other words, we want our worldview to make sense and so we instinctively seek out and believe the information that aligns with our views and disregard the rest. And this is just one of many cognitive biases we all have that makes us care less about the accuracy of information and care more about us being right. It's why two people will hear the same information and both will interpret it to fit their current beliefs. For example, two people with opposing views can hear about a mass shooting and the one who believed in tighter gun control will see it as evidence of why their opinion is right. And the one who believes civilians need guns to defend against attackers will see it as evidence of why their opinion is right. Or another example is how if you hear something bad about someone you don't like, you believe it immediately. Whereas if it's something bad about someone you do like, you are much more skeptical of it. Biases like these are why nobody ever really changes their opinion in a debate or argument. They just become even more entrenched in their original views. Our minds simplify things to try and make sense of the world. And just like with the media, accuracy is not the priority. Even our own memories can't be trusted. Our minds want to fill in the gaps, which leads us to inventing or removing details without being aware of it. Which is why two people can remember the same story differently. We think of our brain like a database, but it's not. It looks for patterns and generalizations, and rather than remembering exact details, it remembers fragments of memories. So when you recall a memory, your brain is just trying to piece together some of those fragments and can easily be distorted in ways we don't even realize. Just look at the Mandela effect, where huge groups of people remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s, even though he didn't die until 2013. Same way that one of the most iconic lines in film is remembered as, Luke, I am your father, when it was actually, no, I am your father. Both collectively and individually, our memories fail us constantly. And as if that wasn't bad enough, then something came along that made the truth even harder to decipher. Just like the media conglomerates, social media platforms profit from sucking you in. The more addicted you are, the better for them and the more money they make. And we already know about how they exploit human vulnerabilities, as they call it, because they've publicly talked about how they created the endless scroll effect, the dopamine hits, and an algorithm designed to continually keep you on the platform. Just like with the media, these social platforms know that polarizing and controversial content performs best, the stuff that triggers an emotional reaction in people. Reliability is not a factor the algorithm cares about. And this helps fuel the huge divide between us all. Everyone's feed is different and tailored to them and their beliefs. You essentially get put in an echo chamber that shows you the articles that align with your views and articles that dismiss the alternatives. And because these social platforms are tracking everything you click, read and see, the algorithm very quickly learns exactly how to keep you there longer, which in turn makes you become more and more entrenched in your beliefs. Leaving you to wonder, how can the other side be so stupid? How are they not seeing the information I'm seeing? But they're often not being shown it. It's difficult to have empathy when you literally cannot see where the other side are coming from. We all think we're smarter than average, so most people are wrong. 
The reality is that it's easier to believe that we're on the smart side and that the others who disagree with us must be idiots and often we're just consuming different media and none of us are seeing the full picture. In fact, some scholars have argued that because there's so many media sources to choose from, we now have selective exposure and can just follow the sources that align with the views we want to hear. Which may be why the divide between the right and left grows wider and why there's a reported increase in extremist views. This is only compounded by the fact that social media is designed for sound bites, not details. We are living in an age where information is distilled into 280 characters or less, and where most people just read the exaggerated headlines anyway. And whilst it's easy to blame the media, blame the platforms, at some point we have to blame ourselves too. The reason fake news spreads so fast on social media is because we share it without questioning how valid or true it really is. If it aligns with our views, we rarely question the bias or lack of context it may have. After all, the world is incredibly complicated and almost every issue is nuanced and intricate. So we simplify things to such basic two-dimensional versions. We pretend things are more black and white than they ever are. We look to tear down or ignore people with opposing views, not to try and understand where they're coming from. And then we contribute to the fakeness further by presenting our own lives to look the way we want them to look rather than reality. We fill our social media with filtered photos and fake friends until the sites that promise to connect the world have left us more disconnected than ever. It's hardly surprising certain influencers exploit this concept for profit by showing you a glimpse of their seemingly perfect life so that you buy the products they allegedly recommend. It's only when you start to look deeper does the illusion start to crumble. In fact, when you start to question what's actually real, everything starts to unravel. Now, before we get into that, let's just let's just make something clear. Obviously, this video has put out some things uh, that I do disagree with. Like I said, uh, many of you pointed out the Mandela effect. But I'd like to say that it's constantly saying the divide of the left and the right. See, they want you to be either left or right. The point is that there is this idea that we must be one or another. <laughs> the trick here is to not play on anybody's turf, but to make your own and say, no, we're not any of that. We, the people, it's pretty simple. And that's what we need to put forward. We, the people, they're constantly trying to put us into these tiny little boxes, huh, these invisible cages. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. As you may know, that was not Obama really saying that. That was a deep fake video that was artificially created several years ago. So just imagine how accurate this technology will be in a few more years when video can be created depicting anyone saying or doing anything without their consent. And it will be entirely indistinguishable from the real thing. It won't be long until recordings won't be considered evidence in a court of law. So again, you start to question, what can we trust? 
How about documentaries? The very definition of a documentary is to provide a factual report on a particular subject. But if you look at some of the most popular documentaries in recent time, you'll see they are filled with the same half-truths as everything else. They need views to be successful, and what better way to get views than making them as sensationalized as possible? Yes, they may still have a lot of truth in them, but they're still never going to give you a full, balanced perspective. They're still designed to grab your attention and create an emotional response. Entertainment is the priority, not accuracy. Okay, so how about statistics? We think of them as being very factual. But of course, they're so often twisted and wildly extrapolated to suit a specific agenda as well. Like, I can tell you that statistically, the safest place in the world to be born is Antarctica, because the stats show they have the lowest infant mortality rate. Zero babies have ever died there. But I won't mention that only 11 babies have ever been born there. It's the same with studies. How often does someone quote the result of the study but has never looked into what the sample size was or who paid for it and whether they have vested interests in the results? It's for this reason every other week we hear this thing is bad for you and then the next week it's supposedly good for you. For example, there was a study that found women are more attracted to men who don't smile. Except, did they find that? What actually happened is in a one-off experiment that was not repeated, 1,000 people from a specific region rated the attractiveness of certain photographs. If the experiment was repeated with different people or photos, there's definitely no guarantee of the same results because there's so many variables involved. And so, can you conclude from that small study that universally women are more attracted to men who don't smile? No, not at all. But that's what was reported very widely by places like Business Insider and Psychology Today because that made for a better headline. And once one source starts sharing it, others share it too. And then people start citing it in conversation. And just like with the media, all context and detail is stripped away and forgotten. Even look at one of the most famous psychology studies of all time, the Stanford Prison Experiments. This was where participants were assigned roles as either inmates or guards in a mock prison. And soon after beginning, the guards started mistreating the prisoners, with the researchers concluding that throwing innocent people into a situation of power would lead them to abuse it. This is taught in schools and universities, documentaries, there's even a movie about it. But it was all a sham. There's audio showing that the guards were told to act so rough, and one of the prisoners has even admitted that he faked a breakdown because he wanted to leave early for an exam and thought that's what the researchers wanted to see. So it's no surprise this experiment's been repeated several times, but the results never matched. And yet, it's often quoted as fact. And so again, we get to the real heart of the problem, which is that just like the media or even our own memories, there's greater incentive to twist things to fit the narrative you want. Because if the experiment doesn't show something new and exciting, there's no story, and it's not going to help your career. So there is every incentive to make the results more interesting and exciting, not accurate. But here's the thing. If we're saying we can't trust videos and documentaries, we can't trust stats and studies, suddenly you really do have to start questioning everything. Quotes, almost all wrongly attributed to a small group of famous people. Reviews, 
it's estimated well over half are totally fake to help sell more products. YouTube, the highest ranked videos are the ones who are best at search engine optimization, not the ones who are most accurate. Wikipedia, literally editable by anyone. Money isn't real. If we all stop believing that this paper or those digits on a screen meant anything, then they wouldn't. Our senses, I can tell you this is orange, but we could be seeing two totally different things. Our choices, based on emotion and cognitive biases, not logic. Our feelings, manipulated constantly by the media and advertisers. Our reality. This is where things start to get really worrying. So here we are, divided, confused, and unsure who or what to believe. It's clear that almost everything has some bias, even if not intentional, which leads to beliefs that we never actually stop to question. For example, there are about 10,000 religions worldwide, and yet almost everyone follows the one they were born into. If they'd been born somewhere else, to different parents, they'd believe something different. And this is not to pick on any singular belief. Almost all beliefs are based on secondhand information. There's a quote that if it weren't for movies, the average person would probably have no idea what an elevator shaft looks like. We say we know what they look like, but actually we've just seen movies that tell us what they look like. The reality is that even things that we think of as being incredibly obvious and unquestionable, like terrorists or evil, it's always more nuanced. To them, we're the evil ones. It's all just down to the very different experiences and beliefs that have been instilled in us. We're all just focused on our own half-truths. Because even with hard science, we're still just trusting that the scientists have got it right. How many of us have actually read all the papers on an issue and checked for themselves? And I'm not saying we should doubt science, but we do know that science often proves itself wrong, and anything can change when new evidence comes to light. So, if it's been wrong before, how do we know it's not wrong right now? How do we know that what we've been told about our world won't get disproved in the future? Let's look at Elon Musk, regarded by many as one of the smartest people alive, creating electric cars, chips for the brain, and reusable rockets. He says there's about a one in a billion chance we're even in base reality. In other words, he proposes that right now, the chances we are just in some kind of simulation is almost certain. His argument is that if you think of the progress that has been made in video game technology in just the last 50 years, even if that improvement rate slows down, it seems inevitable we will get to a point where games are indistinguishable from reality. We're not far off with virtual reality at the moment, let alone in another 50 years. So if we can create a world that's indistinguishable from reality, it seems highly likely we are already in some kind of game or simulation or matrix type world. I mean, if you magnify anything enough, it does become pixelated. And yes, it may sound far-fetched, but how can you prove otherwise? And is it really that much harder than believing we're in an infinitely large universe spinning on a giant space rock with around 8.7 million other species all created by a big bang or a god or whatever you want to believe in based on the beliefs you were indoctrinated with when you grew up? And suddenly you start to think about a dream you had that just felt so real. And then you woke up and you start to question, could you be in some kind of extended dream right now? Your senses have deceived you before, why is this time any different? Solipsism is the belief that there is nothing outside of one's own mind. If you are a brain in a vat, you have no way of knowing you're just a brain in a vat. You can never 
rule out the possibility that the entire world you experience, including all other people, isn't real. It's a figment of your imagination or in your mind. When you really start to question the world around you, from the news you hear to the reality you experience, it's easy to conclude that everything is a lie. And I'd like to end this video with solutions. I'd like to tell you that you can still hold a strong position on something. You just need to be able to argue the other side of the argument first. That you should seek out the smartest people on the other side of the debate to get their opinion before jumping to conclusions. I'd like to tell you that you can still get a good idea of the truth. You just have to dig a little deeper to get a balanced perspective and not rely on a small pool of media sources. But I can't tell you that. Because of course by now you're starting to see that even this video, the very video that's been on your side pointing out the lies, is in itself a lie. It's all based on my biased point of view. I've used stats that you just took at face value, and even if I tell you I got them from a reliable source, did they? Did the person creating the stats have a bias? Even the title of this video, it's a paradox. If I'm telling you the truth that everything is a lie, and everything isn't a lie, which means I was lying. The more you think about this whole problem of truth and lies, the worse it gets. The more confusing and terrifying everything becomes. Is choice an illusion? Are we being manipulated by a hidden hand that's choosing our politicians and keeping us divided so we fight each other instead of them? Are our own minds tricking us into making biased judgments on the entire world around us? So much so that we can't be sure of anything outside of the existence of our own mind. Eventually you start to wonder if questioning everything is worth it, or whether blissful ignorance is better. Because if you really are going to question anything that you can't prove for certain, then you have to accept that you could be in a Truman-style reality show right now, where the world around you isn't real and everyone else but you is in on it. Which means even I'm in on it. And they're probably going to cut this video off soon because I've already said too much and over- So, this goes back to don't even listen to me. See, the, the thing that we have- started to realize and uh together uh over over three years on the radio and online um is that nothing nothing is what it is unless you say it is what it is and in chaos you must seek to find that Still, uh, you know, there's there's other stuff that I want to talk about. So I'm going to take a short break while I go and get myself some coffee because we're going to watch a movie um, after the show. I want you guys to listen to this song. Listen to the. Cause we feel us turn it back on us till the day that we die. Feeling life is a lie. It gets worse and each day it burns till the day that we die. Could you imagine if every single physicist, every single biologist, ecologist, mathematician, you name it? <laughs> that's an ist, found out that everything that they've been working all their life for, every problem they've solved, 
every mathematical equation they used, every hypothesis they posed was based on a lie. Could you imagine the difference if gravitational speed was not nine, um, 9.8 meters per second squared, and it was, I don't know, 900 or 5,000, right? That's a big difference. So you have to understand that, it, like many people say, oh, you know, if you know the truth, say, no, there will be people that will be jumping off of roofs. People that will be taking their own lives because they will not be able to handle that it isn't what they thought. People that have lived that life for 50, 60 years, 40 years, 30 years, even 10 years would not be able to handle it. You must understand that. And there are many people that would be like, please wipe my memory so I unsee. It's not a game. Truth is not fun always, but it's truth. And it's not always pretty. It's usually pretty ugly. But I want to take it another direction right now. I want to take it to the direction of um, uh, talking about the fifth angel. And what I mean is we know about the four angels at the corners of the earth. And we know that not even a little burst of air would ruffle a leaf on the planet if one of these four angels say no. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see the scroll with the seven seals, you know, and one was opened after the other, right? Um, chapter 6. We see the creatures that came out of the seal as they were opened. And then after six seals were opened, that was when we um, see uh, and hear about the four angels. But in the Bible, there's another angel that came through and told those four angels something that they're supposed to do. And in Revelation 7, 2, it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the, uh, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. He cried out to them, right? The angel cried out to the other four that had permission to harm the earth and the sea. That's Revelation 7 two. And that's a really scary part of it. Because here, the Bible tells you where there's another angel that comes in and says to these four angels to tell them and asks them, you know, you, I mean, you would ask yourself, why did the angel say, you know, don't. The fifth angel told the four angels in Revelation 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, many might see it as, well, how will that happen? Like, will they glow? Will I get a sticker? You know, but the 
you have to understand that your genetic code is code. And apparently there's people that will have this seal of God that are selected. And they say there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel where these 144,000 stem from, right? But it's 144,000 base pairs. Your genetic code is 144,000 base pairs. So weird. So weird. Now I'm going to remind you of when this revelation had happened before. And you will see it. It's another story. Because history has a way of repeating itself. History, his story, has a way of repeating itself. It's like... You know, it's kind of like repeating the same thing, hoping that you get another result. That's basically what we're seeing. Because history, as I've said from day one, is not what they tell you. Oh, the Parthenon was built 5,000 years ago. Who said? The scientists who said, were you there? No. Do we have documentation? No. Well, we have documentation that scientists said that that's about okay. Fair enough. Will you explain how Jesus was in Brazil at the same time of being in Israel? Was it at the same time? Because everyone's saying at the same time, but then they're just like, no, it was another time. I'm just really confused. Talk to me about Easter Island. When was that? That was back then, then, then. When's then? Oh, because that scientist said it. And then that scientist verified that he said it. And then that scientist, and you know, they did carbon dating. Carbon dating based on what math? See, it's it's pretty interesting. Now, I want you guys to understand the new world order. When you're, when you're watching slash listening to this, I want you to think of this, uh, what everyone calls the new world order, the global government, the United Nations. Pay attention to this story. It is in Genesis 11 that we learn about what is considered to be the very first skyscraper ever built, or at least attempted to be built. This tower was intended to reach the heavens, so that one may ascend and commune directly with God himself. But it was more than just a bridge to connect man with his creator, but a staple of man to determine where they each belong to, a hub if you will, so that each man could find his way back, so as to avoid being scattered across the earth. It would become known as the Tower of Babel, and unfortunately for those constructing the tower, scattered is exactly what they would become. It was the descendants of Noah who were living in the ancient area of Mesopotamia, in Babylon, whereby they came to settle in a land known as Shinar. The Bible tells us that these men, or the whole earth for that matter, spoke with one language, understood by all, and that they would come to dwell in Shinar after travelling far from the east. The Bible tells us, now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. But these men who settled in Shinar were not content to just settle there in the barren lands. Their population was growing, and the people wished to establish a symbol for how great their nation was. And what better symbol could a nation have than a tower that could reach the heavens? But obviously, the heavens were not intended for man, unless, of course, God decreed it. The Babylonians, therefore, appeared to take matters into their own hands and decided to build this tower anyway. They said, Come, 
Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Based on the text alone, it's hard to see the Babylonians here as defying God. God didn't tell them that they couldn't build the tower to visit the heavens, nor does this necessarily seem to be their intention. Primarily, their objective was to build themselves a symbol to be proud of, a structure that demonstrated their ability to build, their creativity and resourcefulness. It was to be a home base, somewhere that the Babylonians could gaze upon to remind themselves of where they were and to prevent them from wandering off and getting lost. The intentions of the Babylonians here appears to be benign, though it is argued that their desire to reach heaven was a sin in itself, for they demonstrate hubris and arrogance in that they believe they can reach heaven at all without God's permission. Evidently, the Bible is in accordance with this, for we are told, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand another's speech. God here recognizes that the Babylonians are one people with one language. He understands that the people are a close-knitted bunch, but that this will in turn work against him, or cause some obstacle in the grand scheme of things. He comes to realize that nothing they dream of will be impossible, implying that their desire to build a temple to reach the heavens is indeed well and truly possible, and that this would be the first of many constructions that would upset him. His statement that nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them gives us the idea that God recognizes man's ability to overcome any problem, and that man has the ingenuity to build or create anything that he wishes, for nothing can be withheld from them. Here you might say that God fears the ambition of man, and that it will lead him to become arrogant, perhaps arrogant enough that he will believe he can ascend to heaven whenever he fancies. So God sets upon the Babylonians the very same fate that they had sought to avoid. He scatters them. The Bible tells us, So the Lord scattered them abroad, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. We begin to see here that the story aims to explain why it is that the world and all its people speak different languages. As mentioned, it was the united human race, those that came after the Great Flood, who migrated westward to the land of Shinar, and that these great number of people all spoke the same language. It's so weird, right? It's, um, it's talking about a time, okay? Just using the words. It's talking about a time where all of man spoke the same language and was under one governance. And man was then told by this guy named Nimrod, uh, let's build this tower and go up to the heavens because we can. And no one can tell us anything different. And as they were doing this unification process and building the tower, man became evil and aggressive and did many other things. So as they were making this tower, 
God said, all right, well, all of you are going to speak different languages because this needs to be, damn, this happened way too fast. Darn seed. Nobody's going to talk. You're not unified. You all have your cultures. Go and, 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 and be and redeem yourselves the right way. Don't keep falling into these little pockets. In order to prevent them from completing their mission of building the tower, God confuses the language of the earth, causing these migrants to become unable to communicate with one another. Without being able to understand each other, the tower is never actually completed. And they begin to venture away from each other, alienated by their inability to communicate and segregated by their loss of purpose. The Bible then tells us that the tower would become to be known as Babel, which is thought to have derived from the Hebraic term Balal, meaning to jumble or confuse. However, the exact origin of the term Babel has not been entirely confirmed. There's a mainstay theme in this story, and that's the often unspoken competition between man and creator, or at least the ambition of man. Man's ambition is truly highlighted in this story, given that they desire to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, quite literally, by building to reach his level. We've seen how much God hates this sort of thinking, most notably in Lucifer, who tries to take God's throne and establish himself as the Most High. You might say that this incident was eerily reminiscent to God, who would have seen the humans building the structure so that they could be, at least in the physical sense, just as high as him. The ambition of man is seen elsewhere in the Bible too, like in the story of Adam and Eve, where it can be argued that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for they believed it would make them like God. This is the same for those who were building the tower, for their desire to be on God's level is not something that he could tolerate. Through this though, we also get a glimpse of God's mercy. After all, he recognized that those who were building the temple were not necessarily bad people. They simply wanted to achieve something to not only represent their nation, but also to be so glorious that it had its place in heaven. They might have overestimated their jurisdiction, in a sense but they were not doing this in spite of God or to spite anyone else. It is why God doesn't just destroy the tower, but instead spreads this confusion by altering their languages. It is perhaps one of the most benign ways God could have dissuaded the people, although he probably could have just asked them to stop. However, in doing this, I suppose there may have been some people from amongst the group who would defy him, which would in then turn leave him no choice but to respond with more aggression. By changing languages, he removes all possibility of them working together and renders them powerless, without shedding any blood. Another idea is that this was not actually a punishment or a warning at all, but instead God's way of protecting the people from building too high, where they would not be able to breathe, and also his way of ensuring a vast range of culture, by getting mankind to speak differently and to explore more regions. A first century Jewish interpretation of the Tower of Babel states that the tyrant Nimrod, the king of the land of Shinar, was the man who commissioned the construction of the tower and that it was indeed done as an act of defiance against God. This idea was most notably recognized by the historian Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, where he states that it was Nimrod who built the tower so as to turn people away from God. He also goes on to say that the reason why God did not destroy the people for their defiance was because he'd already sent the flood, and if that hadn't been enough to make man see the error of his ways, then nothing of the sort would. 
Therefore, God sought to confuse man instead by changing his language. But interestingly, the Tower of Babel is not a story unique to the Bible. It has been told in a variety of different ways, from ancient Sumerian stories to various other ancient traditions from around the world. The central idea is the same in that one group of people appear to build a tower or some form of construction, only for their language to become disrupted or altered so that they cannot communicate with each other effectively enough to finish what they started. In a Sumerian myth, the legendary king Enmerka of Uruk builds what is known as a ziggurat, a sort of massive structure known in ancient Mesopotamia. Proud of his creation, Enmerka demands tributes in the form of precious metals from the people of Arata. He is also seen praying to the god Enki to disrupt the linguistics of certain regions. Another story involving a ziggurat and possibly the inspiration for the story of the Tower of Babel is a particular ziggurat known as Etamananki, the temple of the foundation of heaven and earth, which was dedicated to Marduk in the city of Babylon. Marduk, of course, being the Babylonians' patron god. The structure was destroyed in 689 BC by the Neo-Syrian Empire, but later rulers, most notably Nebuchadnezzar II, would try to rebuild it. Supposedly, the original was never completed, and that it was missing a roof. It would become an abandoned project and became victim to the elements, compromising its structural integrity. But Nebuchadnezzar II's project was also ill-fated, for it was reduced to ruins by Alexander the Great in 331 BC because he wanted to rebuild it from scratch. When he died, however, these plans were also forsaken. There were several attempts by various leaders to rebuild Etamananki, but the building appeared to be cursed because no one ever seemed to be able to achieve this feat. Antiochus I, the Hellenistic king of the Seleucid Empire, was the last person to try. He went to visit the site, but after stumbling on rubble, he became annoyed at the place and ordered the riders of his elephant cavalry to destroy what was left instead. Another story similar to the Tower of Babel comes from an old folktale in Mexico associated with the Great Pyramid of Cholula. And the idea here is that the giants who once roamed the land set off in search of the sun and built a tower to reach it. But this act angered the inhabitants of the sky, those that were presumed to be the gods, who destroyed the tower and disseminated the giants across the world as punishment. Of course, in this story, the tower is left in ruins, and the gods unleash their anger on those who dare to reach them. This is unlike the god in Genesis, who, as we know, spares the tower and is quite subtle in his reaction by comparison. In the Book of Jubilees, an ancient Jewish religious work, a detailed account of the tower is given, where we are told the exact materials used in its construction, how long it took, and also how tall it was, though this is often disputed. The text reads, And they began to build, and in the fourth week they made brick with fire, and the brick served them for stone, and the clay with which they cemented them together was asphalt, which comes out of the sea, and out of the fountains of water in the land of Shinar. And they built it, Forty and three years were they building it. Its breadth was 203 bricks, and the height of a brick was the third of one. Its height amounted to 5,433 cubits and two palms, and the extent of one wall was 13 states, and of the other, 30 states. Meanwhile, in the Greek apocalypse of Baruch, 
a pseudepigraphical book, otherwise known as the Third Apocalypse of Barak, Barak ben Neriah, a scribe of the prophet Jeremiah, tells us that in one of his visions, he sees the state of both the sinners and the righteous in the afterlife. Amongst the sinners, however, are those who first began the construction of the Tower of Babel. There are also men who have been transformed into dogs. And these are the men who once encouraged the building of the tower, or gave specific engineering advice on how to achieve it. Barak also tells us that those building the temple were not building for their own sense of achievement, nor to be closer to God, but to see for themselves what heaven looked like. This in turn angered God that they would assume they had the right to see the glory that they had not earned, and so sent upon them confusion by delivering upon them the barrier of language. In Judaism, there are several midrash which detail the Tower of Babel, but one particularly vivid one is known as the Generation of Secession, and we are told that the people building the temple were displeased with God and believed it to be unfair that he ruled the upper world, whilst they were deemed to rule the lower one. To spite God and to show him their dissatisfaction, they built the tower with the intention of placing a statue at the very top, one who was holding a sword towards the heavens. As you might imagine, this was to show that they were not afraid of God, and meant to war with him, if need be. The Tower of Babel, meanwhile, does not seem to appear in the Quran in Islam, but there are some similarities with other stories. One in particular is when a pharaoh asks the Haman, which was the high priest, to build a tower so that he might confront Allah. This comes about because Allah had commanded Moses to go and visit the pharaoh in Egypt, and invite him to monotheism, and to abandon his old gods. Moses also sought to stop the pharaoh from his tormenting of the Israelites, but the pharaoh would hear none of it, and determined Moses and his god to be sorcerers and shamans. Outraged by Moses' request, he commanded the Haman to build him a tower, so that he could condemn Allah to his face. But he never actually got this far, given that both the Haman and the pharaoh were drowned in the Red Sea. Ibn Manzur, an Arabic lexicographer of the 13th century, wrote the Lisan al-Arab in 1290, which is one of the most comprehensive Arabic dictionaries. It features a tale about a plain known as Babel. Now, whilst this area of Babel is never specified as being in Shinar, that isn't the only significant omission. There is also no tower to speak of either. Instead, mankind seems to congregate in this particular area, and they are given individual languages by God, though not because of punishment, but perhaps to ensure that they would separate and go their own way. But in the history of the Prophets and Kings, a historical Arabic chronicle written by the theologian Al-Tabari, he tells us that there was indeed a tower present upon this land, and that Nimrod again was responsible for its creation. In this version though, Allah destroys the structure first, before proceeding to split mankind up by bestowing upon them 72 different languages. Another idea presented by the 13th century historian Abu al-Fida tells us that Eber, a grandson of Noah, was allowed to keep the original tongue of the people, for he was the only one who did not partake in the building of the tower. Whilst there are many variations of the Tower of Babel, or a tower in general, that also seems to coincide with the establishment of language, all of them seem to end up telling near enough the same story. The premise is featured across all three major religions, and also has its roots in ancient religion and culture too. 
as we've seen with the Sumerian texts, and also from folkloric tales too. But perhaps there's something I might have missed about the Tower of Babel, or something you'd like to add perhaps. Let me know in the comments below, and as always, don't forget to give this video a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe. Well, I'm his Patreon. I love the way he puts these videos together and his research. Even though most of the research is just that, simply research put together, it's nicely aggregated for people to be able to kind of just watch it, pause for a bit, and think about it. You have to think, how many times has history repeated itself? I mean, you're not even told exactly what your, you know, biodome is. Uh, you know, it's all about control. And I realized that the right and the left, you know, we had this discussion with Patrick Berge, actually, where he compared me to Osama bin Laden. <laughs> I hate that. But um, he compared me to Osama in this sense. And this is where I'm going to kind of dovetail it into what I wanted to talk about. Um, so for most of you, you have no idea why we went to Afghanistan. I'm going to watch the chat for a second. I want you guys to tell me why we went to war with Afghanistan. Like, honestly, like, what did the media tell you? Ooh, the guy with the sweater is so smart. Go on. What did the media say? What did the media say? The media told you it's because Osama bin Laden was there, right? That's what the media told you. Well, the truth is... You know, okay, first of all, the Taliban are not a fucking terrorist group, okay? Stop listening to the fake news. The Taliban are actually a political party that had been weaponized by Reagan in order to help tumble down the Russians and created the Mujahideen and the freaking jihad of Russia. No joke. Now, they are in control. They were the political party that controlled Afghanistan. When they were in control, mind you, when they were in control, women were in miniskirts. They weren't crazy. They were weaponized and they changed. And how did they change? By a man that the United States of America trained by the name of Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden. That then became O. Can't, can't call him O. You have to call him O now. The Saudis hated him. The Taliban fucking hated him. All the mullahs hated him. He was never in Afghanistan. The U.S. brought him to Afghanistan so that he can supposedly hide. They kicked him out. All right. He was always in Pakistan living in luxury. He wasn't in some fucking cave. OK, he was he was living it up with the, you know, Pakistani intelligence. That's the truth. That is hardcore truth. So the wars they created in Afghanistan were for what? Lots of things. There were a lot of things going on. Many will tell you it was because they were taking out the poppy fields. Yet the pharmaceutical companies wanted to rape the crap out of the poppy fields. I mean, how do they make oxy, right? It was just, it was just a byproduct. It was just a win. See, one day we're going to talk about, mm, at some point, end of August, maybe on another Saturday night, where we don't talk news, you know. I think I mentioned it on my show before, but something had happened in Afghanistan 
where all these leaders, Merkel, Obama, all these clowns freaking went to. They went there because they found something. (laughs) Stuff that they plummeted from the Middle East, (laughs) which, by the way, I posted a link to, what was it, January 15, 2019, and there's another one where I mentioned it again, and everyone kind of missed it. Why the fuck was Hobby Lobby smuggling shit from the Middle East through Turkey? Artifacts. Well, most of them are supposedly Christian artifacts. Supposedly Christian artifacts. But that's not all of it. I think I mentioned the Vimana before. But U.S. soldiers disappeared. There are things that they're not telling you. (laughs) 20 years we're there, and an army so great, an army so strong, we can't put it under control. Stop. How's another one? How many of you fly in airplanes right now that still have ashtrays? How is it that in over 50 years, airplanes haven't fucking changed, but your computer changes every every month? Your phones at least once a year. (laughs) But airplanes are the same. Guys, they're just not sharing it with you. You know, I saw this advertisement on a flight because I actually flew flew back home from Chicago on United. It was just a hot mess. I had to switch airlines, whatever. And, you know, I'm not flying United. They mandated vaccines for their employees. And none of them are going to fight because they, like it is, if you say a lie many times enough, people just believe it's true and that you have the authority to do what they say. But (laughs) I digress. What I saw was that they were advertising an airplane called Boom. Uh, You mean the Concorde? (laughs) It was so weird. You'll go to London in like, Three hours from da-da-da, six hours from L.A. to Tokyo. And it's like, wait a minute. I think I've heard that shit before. It's called the Concorde. So the question that I pose to you is, have you ever asked yourself that? Why the fuck haven't airplanes changed at all? Oh, let me guess. It's too expensive. Stop. Stop. Why have they not giving you technology. Why haven't they upgraded our aircraft? Why haven't they used the new technology? It's just really expensive. It's going to cost too much money to get a new fleet. And even the new, you know, airplanes that are AI driven, all they did was fucking change the motherboards. The damn planes are the same. So again, Why do we have the same type of airplanes? Why haven't cars changed? Only Elon Musk has changed something. And that's because he had the balls to. And since everyone's on it, you know, all the other car companies are like, shit, we have to fucking take it there now. We have to do that. We can't milk the oil and gas shit anymore. We got to go to batteries. So let's like start owning the electricity. But then the people are going to figure out how there's free electricity. Thank you, Tori. And then, uh, then we're fucked. We can't milk them anymore. We can't hide it anymore. We can't hide the technology anymore. They hated Musk. Took him 10 years all by himself, but he was successful. And there were a couple rich people that weren't on the in. You know, I know a lot of people give a lot of flack to the Freemasons. Not all of them are bad. They're all about 
not having people jump off roofs. <laughs> but matter of fact is, no one helped Elon Musk, okay? It was a crazy leftist. Yeah, we need to know. Green New Deal. No, 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 no. That way they can save up whatever oil they have because they want to go underground. Well, that's what they say. So to close this show, I found this really interesting video. I didn't watch it all. I wanted to watch it with you guys. It's from um, the, the Grace Network. I found it super fascinating. The three heavens, why no one is talking about it. Angels and Lucifer. So I thought we could watch it together because I kind of like, you know, skip, skip, skip. And I was like, okay. But instead of watching it, I thought I'd watch it with you guys and we can comment together. Let's go. What is your view of heaven? Do you think there is such a place? If so, is it a place of ethereal light and music where choirs worship God in a setting of awe-inspiring beauty and elaborate architecture? Do you imagine dazzling displays of gold and silver with an array of countless precious stones? This is certainly true in a measure, but it is not the complete picture. Perhaps you see heaven as the inner surface of a huge concave dome that extends out over the entire earth. As the edge of the dome approaches the horizon, it sometimes gives the impression that it will fall short, but it never does. It always covers the earth beneath it. Almost all inhabitants of earth have a certain impression of heaven. As we contemplate the vast possibilities, we need to bear in mind that various terms are used to describe heaven. The single noun heaven emphasizes its overall unity. Other expressions seem to refer to its various aspects or parts. For example, the terms heavenlies or heavenly places suggest a number of different places, all of which are combined under the heading heaven. These places may be given over at various times to different beings and different activities. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful or not possible for a man to utter. This passage indicates that there are three heavens in total, one immediately above the other. The highest is what Paul describes as the third heaven. It is the place of paradise and the place of personal dwelling of God, the most sacred place in the universe. It is passages such as this one that give us the concept often associated with heaven, purity or holiness. The words uttered there are so sacred that they cannot be repeated outside. Paradisos, paradise, is the Greek word for a garden. It represents God's garden in heaven. Paradise is the ultimate destination of all sinners who have truly repented and who have persevered in the life of faith. On the cross, Jesus promised the penitent thief 
that the two of them would be together that day in paradise. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43 Almost all inhabitants of the earth have an impression of heaven. The book of Revelation introduces us to an area called the mid-heaven, or the midst of heaven. To my knowledge, this describes some sort of large area in which different types of beings come and go. The following verses expresses various powerful beings who proclaim themselves from the mid-heaven. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, literally mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Revelation 8.13 Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, literally mid-heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Revelation 14.6 then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, literally mid-heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Revelation 19.17 The Greek word used for the mid-heaven is misaur anima, which means precisely that, the mid-heaven. This could be the second heaven. We might assume, finally, that the visible heaven, the heaven that is visible to our natural eyesight, is the first heaven. All the inhabitants of the earth are familiar with this heaven to a certain extent. What about the inhabitants of heaven? What kind of creatures are they? The most common name they are given is angels. The word angel is derived from the Greek noun angelos, which is the standard word for messenger. Therefore, angels are considered messengers sent from heaven. However, not all angels are messengers. They have a number of other potential functions. Regardless of their tasks, they are sent forth by God for His purposes. However, Scripture lets us know that there are also evil angels sent forth by Satan for His purposes. Sometimes there may be opposition or conflicts between the angels of God and the angels of Satan. Some of these conflicts are described in Scripture, especially in the book of Daniel. The inescapable fact thus confronts us that our world as we know it today is a scene of conflict. Furthermore, this conflict is not restricted to earth. It is also a vital factor in all that takes place in heaven. The angels sent forth by God have three main tasks. First, as already stated, they are God's messengers. Secondly, they are God's agents sent forth to protect those who may be in danger. These are normally described as guardian angels. Matthew 18.10 Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. In this verse, Jesus speaks of children who have angels in heaven who continually see the face of the Father. By implication, the Father's watchful eye directs those angels to potentially vulnerable children. In the third category are warrior angels, 
who are in conflict with other angels. Many Christians believe that heaven is a place of unbroken peace and harmony, elegance and worship. This may well be true of the third heaven, but it does not apply to the first and second heavens. Some scriptures paint a different picture of what is currently happening in the second heaven. As already mentioned, it is sometimes the scene of a major conflict between warring angels, some serving God and others serving Satan. It is primarily in the heavenly regions that such conflict takes place. It is also here that Satan pours out a stream of slanderous accusations against the Christians on earth who serve the Lord. In Revelation 12:10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which has accused them before our God day and night. He is described by the angel as the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night. This scripture continues to predict that Satan will be cast down from heaven. But until that happens, it is clear that he is still occupying a place somewhere in the heavens and that he is filling the air with malicious accusations against the people of God. A verse that follows is a warning to the inhabitants of the earth about what they might expect when the devil is ultimately cast down from heaven to earth. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Revelation 12, 12. These verses look forward to a period when Satan has but a short time. They may well be close at hand, but they have not yet been fulfilled. Certainly, the events described have not been fulfilled. Therefore, we must be realistic about Satan's current activities. Many Christians habitually speak as if Satan were confined to hell, but that is not true. There are two satanic princes named Death and Hades who rule in hell, but Satan himself roams freely throughout the universe. Revelation 20, 13 And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. This is plainly depicted in Job 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down it. Many Christians habitually speak as if Satan were confined in hell, but this is not true. The main difference between earth and heaven is that this world has been corrupted by sin, but heaven has not. Man's sin permeates the earth, and God's glory perfects heaven. God, the glory of heaven, created earth and gave it to the human race to care for and enjoy. Instead of obeying God's instructions on the things of earth, however, Adam and Eve decided to listen to Satan. Their disobedience, their rebellion against God, separated them from the fellowship with God. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Romans 5:19, NKJV. As a result, the disease of sin has been transmitted to every generation. The Bible says, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Genesis 6, 12. Isaiah 24, 5 and 6. The earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. The earth groans because it has been marred by sin. Like a crippling disease, sin distorts and devastates everything it touches. Sin corrupts and divides, but heaven declares the glory of the Lord. Psalm 19, 1. Heaven is the throne of God. Isaiah 66, 1. And because he is absolutely holy and without sin, he cannot tolerate sin or look upon it without bringing judgment. The Bible says of God, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Habakkuk 1.13 But his love is so powerful and great, that he has made a way for the curse of sin to be removed, the guilt that stains our hearts and corrupts our world. God crucified sin on the cross by the blood of Christ who redeemed us from sin's penalty. He died in our place, taking the judgment we deserve, presenting us faultless to his Father in heaven. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world because he is the only one who can bridge the gap between heaven and earth. The Bible says, By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19 It is difficult for us to admit, but we are sinners by birth, sinners by choice, and sinners by practice. The good news is that God has made a way for us to be saved by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 And this is his glorious gift to the people in a fallen world. The difference between heaven and earth is that Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven and came to this sin-infested earth for one reason, to make our eternal salvation possible. And that makes all the difference to God in heaven and to us on earth. We will see many glorious sights in heaven, but the most powerful of all will be the Savior of the world in his glory. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Isaiah 33, 17 Jesus Christ gave us a glimpse of this when he pulled back the curtain of heaven and told the Apostle John to write down what he saw. Then I saw a lamb. I heard every creature in heaven singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Revelation 5, 6, and 13. It is part of our human nature to want to indulge our fantasies about heaven, but God has his reasons for giving us only a taste of his eternal dwelling place. Human language is insufficient to describe such majesty. The magnificence of earth's possessions will dim in heaven's sunlight. 
John could only express it with analogies. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Revelation 21:21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Here on earth, streets are covered with gravel and asphalt, and windows are made of glass. But John writes about the golden streets, which are transparent. Remember that in heaven, everything is made new. Only snapshots of the things to come are given to us. We will require a heavenly transformation to comprehend such glory. The clouded things of the earth will become transparent in eternity. They are now known only to Him. As we practice patience while waiting, let thoughts of heaven's glory fill your soul. They will sustain you until the day your eyes are fully open. Peter tells those whose hope is heavenward, You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.11 When he extends his arms inviting his people in, he will turn to his Father and say, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. John 17.22 We will look at his nail-scarred hands, fall at his feet, and weep with joy praising his wonderful name. That's what we'll see in heaven. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to awaken within us the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Assist us in developing in our relationship with the Holy Spirit and living in his power and using his gifts. Jesus gave us a promise. You told us, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. John 14, 26 Help me learn that I don't comprehend everything, and that this is okay, as the Holy Spirit knows it all. Supply us with the Holy Spirit and His understanding, of everything that is happening in our life. I ask these things in your name. Just as the sun rises each day against the dark of night, please bring me clarity with the Holy Father's light. Heavenly Father, grant me rest of mind and calm my troubled heart. My soul is like a stormy sea. I can't seem to find my stability. Give me the energy and clarity of mind to find my purpose and walk the path you've put out for me. I trust your love, God, and I know that you will help me out of this night, just as the sun rises each day against the dark of night. Please bring me clarity with the light of God. In your name I pray, kind Father. We prayfully come into your neighborhood, asking the power and power of Christ's mind, bestowed upon me by your Holy Spirit. 
Please give us the energy to stand above every test and provocation thrust my way. Cast and make me, Lord, into a genuine follower of Christ. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sound mind. Develop my mind to be like Christ. Holy Spirit, live within my life and grant that I may ever abide in you. God the Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. Strengthen me in all my difficulties. Give me your seen gifts, and allow your twelve fruits ripen in me. O Holy Spirit, you seek the salvation of all human beings, and for that purpose you want all of them to get the knowledge of your truth. Present to all of them your mighty light and your love of goodwill, that they may give glory to God in unity of faith, hope, and love. Send workers into the harvest who are truly inspired by you who are the soul of the missionary church. Amen. O King of glory, send us the promise of the Father, the Spirit of truth. May the Counselor who proceeds from you enlighten us and infuse all truth in us as you have promised. Amen. Promises made, promises kept. Now some people may argue with that, but I'm telling you, that is it. I um, played this because I was, I, I actually fell across it accidentally. And, you know, I, when I was watching parts of it, I actually thought to myself, how would other people who are very confused feel? In the sense of whichever religion, either that be, you know, uh, any denomination of Christianity, um, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, you know, any religion. How would that not confuse them more? And, you know, I, I ask that all the time. There are a lot of people that, 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 that read the scripture and believe that, okay, uh, okay, hurry up, take my time up. Uh, I want to go, you know, and then you have to think to yourself, where do you go? And what there was a, st Damn, trying to think how to state this more eloquently, I would say. Living. Living is so incredible. If someone was to ask me what my most terrifying, what I'm scared of. I've, I've always said I'm not scared of anything. Really, I'm not. Uh, I'm not, I'm scared of spiders, but you know, if it comes down to it, it's me or the spider, damn, that spider's going to get it. Uh, shark, I'm going to go down fighting. Lion, totally go down fighting. I'll be scared for a second only because it's like, dang, this is going to be rough. But the problem that I have with fear is not the, it's the moment, you know, that moment, right? Um, of seeing teeth, 
right? Or stupid little legs climbing up on you. And then it passes. But I believe that the most treacherous moment of any human being would be knowing that they're taking their last breath or knowing that it's the last time they're going to see the sky, feel what water feels like around their hand, living, living in this reality, this construction is amazing. Even though it's all a lie and it's all an illusion and you're pretty much trapped, this is the Hotel California, you're kind of okay with that. And sometimes I think, you know, how would Jesus feel? Like knowing and then becoming and breathing and feeling sand between his toes. It's different. I, I can't explain it otherwise, but living is is a joy in itself, Because I think it's in that moment of living is where you realize just how incredible the world really is. Not saying that other worlds aren't. I'm just saying that it's so incredible to watch and and, and see and observe, I guess, you know, if one was to look from the outside, a place where people are trapped and yet they still have joy a place where people are trapped and yet they still have love, a place where people are trapped and still have hope when they're the ones that are putting the chains on their hands themselves. I think the most glorious part is, is to be that moment when they actually decide to take them off themselves, even though it's that last breath um, per se, not like death. It's it, it would equate to, an amazing moment, but kind of like a bitter, sweet moment. It's kind of like, you know, seeing a magic trick and being really excited about it. And then realizing that it wasn't that complicated, that it was quite simple. And you have to kind of laugh and cry and feel relief and sadness at the same time. Sadness for losing the ability to have ignorance. I know a lot of people prefer to know rather than ignorance, but it's um, it's quite fascinating if, you know, like I've always said this. Um, I think I, I mentioned it before that <laughs> there are differences in the way we were and the way we are um, here. Um, carbon is a very horrific, uh, element, uh, but it is the base of all life right now. But what is the identical element that I've said before? That's better. It's almost as if carbon was chosen in order to have a a shorter life. That's why carbon dating is so stupid. Exactly. Silicone. So you'll, you'll, can you change. I think that's what they're trying to do, but you can't. Once you taint something and you change it, how do you go back? I mean, you can try. Maybe this is why all these creeps live forever per se. But anyway, on that note, um, I am going to terminate this feed 
um, with a song. And then I'm going to start movie night on Twitch. So for those that are just here for uh, the show, I'm going to be uh, putting on a little song. And uh, it's actually one of my favorites. Um, let me see if I can find it. I found another cover for it. Um, but I don't know if that's the one. Yeah, there it is. And I'll see you guys right after the song where we're going to get into the movie. You like, but you can't. 